Hello. In this session, James Hall and I will be discussing the ever, ever thorny issue of aggregation in solicitors' professional indemnity insurance, PII, with particular reference to the cases of AIG and Woodman and the recent case of Baines and Dixon, Coles and Gill, also known as Guide Dogs for the Blind and Box, in which judgment was handed down late last year. James, could you just explain the general concept of aggregation and how it applies to solicitors' PII policies? Sure. So aggregation is the process by which what might appear to be multiple claims on an insurance policy can be treated as one claim. And that principle can operate either in favour of the insurer or the insured, uh, depending on the context. So, for example, if there are lots of individually small claims, each of which would fall within or close to the excess normally payable by the insured, it would generally be in the insured's um, interest to aggregate so that all claims are treated as one claim, they only pay one excess, leaving the insurer to pick up the vast majority of the tab. On the other hand, it would be in the insurer's interest not to aggregate in that scenario, because it might well result in the insured paying out almost all of the loss via its multiple excesses. And that was the dispute in the seminal 2003 case of Lloyd's TSB General Insurance and Lloyd's Bank Group Insurance Company which is really the most uh, important case in recent times prior to the cases that John has just mentioned. On the other hand, if you've got a situation where there are fewer bigger claims, which when combined would exceed the limit of indemnity, then it's probably more in the insurer's interest to aggregate, so as to cap their um, total liability at one limit of indemnity rather than the insured's. So the insured would rather have lots of slightly smaller claims, each of which was within the limit of indemnity. They may have to pay multiple excesses, but overall the position would be better for them uh, if there is no aggregation. Now that scenario, the second scenario where there are fewer big claims is really the one we're concerned with here, because in relation to solicitors, there are, as many of you will know, minimum terms and conditions of insurance um, set down by the SRA. Uh, in fact, they're called the SRA Minimum Terms and Conditions of Professional Indemnity Insurance. Those minimum terms and conditions require that the insurer covers uh, an excess, even if the insured solicitor can't. So even if uh, it was theoretically to the advantage of the insurer to have uh, no aggregation, lots of smaller claims and excesses payable by the insured solicitor, the claims against the solicitor um, need not worry about that because ultimately the insurer will have to cover it anyway and it simply becomes a dispute between the insurer and the insured solicitor. But what the minimum terms and conditions do do is to permit aggregation um, up to a certain point which we'll be discussing in the rest of this talk. Um, I should note that other professions uh, do not have minimum terms and conditions of cover um, in the way that solicitors do as a general rule. So for example, in relation to accountants, whilst uh, the regulatory bodies do specify certain minimum standards, they don't specify uh, the level of minimum cover that insurers at, uh, for solicitors have to provide. And in addition, uh, the aggregation clauses within, for example, accountants and PII policies can vary quite widely uh, in their effect and their terminology. So just treat these principles with caution when applying them, seeking to apply them to any other profession. Now, in terms of the aggregation provisions within the minimum terms and conditions, clause uh, 2.1 of the minimum terms provides that the minimum limit for any one claim as defined, uh, and which is exclusive of defense costs, is at least three million pounds for any solicitor's firm, which is a limited corporate body, such as a company or an LLP, 
or £2 million for a solicitor's firm which is not incorporated, such as an unlimited company, although I've never come across one of those as, as a solicitor's firm, uh, an ordinary partnership or a sole practitioner, of which there are uh, decreasing numbers in any event. So broadly, ordinary partnerships, £2 million of minimum, minimum amount of cover, LLPs and companies, £3 million. And the extent to which the insurer can aggregate is dealt with in clause 2.5 of the minimum terms, which um, states as follows. Under the heading one claim, the insurance may provide that when considering what may be regarded as one claim for the purpose of the limit contemplated by clause 2.1, uh, all claims against any one or more insured arising from either firstly, one act or remission, secondly, one series of related acts or omissions, thirdly, the same act or omission in a series of related matters or transactions, or fourthly, similar acts or omissions in a series of related matters or transactions can be regarded as one claim. I'm slightly abbreviating the terms of that clause, but those are the key points. There are four different ways in which the professional indemnity insurer of a solicitor um, can aggregate. Uh, one act of remission, that's pretty obviously going to be one claim anyway, a series of related acts of remissions, the same act of remission in a series of related matters or transactions, or similar acts of remissions in a series of related matters or transactions. Now, given that framework, John, please could you explain uh, what the decision was in AIG and Woodman? Thank you, James. Well, in AIG and Woodman, a property development company instructed a firm of solicitors to devise a scheme for private investors to finance its development of two holiday resorts one in Turkey and one in Morocco. The solicitors created a trust for each development, which would either own or hold a charge over the development land as security for the sums investing. The solicitors were the trustees and the investors were the beneficiaries. The funds advanced by the investors were initially held by the solicitors in an escrow account and were not to be released unless and until the value of the assets held by the trust was sufficient to cover the investment to be protected. For each investment, the solicitors opened a file, including a loan purchase agreement between the investor and the developers, and an escrow agreement between the investor, the developer, and the solicitors. The developers entered an agreement to purchase the Turkish site and an agreement to purchase shares in a company which owned the Moroccan site. The solicitors subsequently released the investments funds. The developers were unable to complete the developments and were wound up. Investors brought two claims against the solicitors, one in relation to each side, claiming that the solicitors had wrongly released their money in the absence of adequate security. Claims mounted out to over £10 million in total. The solicitors had PII, where the insurer's liability was list, list limited to £3 million in respect of each claim, and per the minimum terms, all claims arising from similar acts or omissions in a, quote, a series of related matters or transactions, unquote could be aggregated and regarded as one claim. The insurer sought a declaration that the investors' claims were one claim for the purpose of that clause. The judge held that the words, quotes, in a series of related matters or transactions, end quotes, in clause 2.5A4 minimum terms, referred to transactions which were dependent upon each other. Therefore, although the claims arose from similar acts or omissions, the declaration was refused because the transactions between the developer and each investor were not mutually dependent. The Court of Appeal allowed the insurer's appeal in part, holding that in order to be regarded as one claim, the transactions did not have to be dependent on each other, but to have an intrinsic relationship with each other, not an extrinsic relationship with a third factor. 
On the insurer's appeal, the Supreme Court held, allowing the appeal, that the application of Clause 2.5a little Roman 4 of the Law Society's minimum terms and conditions for indemnity insurance was not to be viewed exclusively from the perspective of either party, since aggregation clauses of MPI policies had the capacity in some cases to operate in favour of the insurer, in other cases to favour the insured. But further, as a regulator, the Law Society had to balance the need for obtaining PI insurance that, forgive me, that, uh, as a regulator, the Law Society had to balance the need for reasonable protection of the public with consideration of the cost and availability of obtaining PI insurance. But by requiring that the relevant acts or remissions in this be in a series of related matters or transactions, clause 25A little Roman 4 confine the scope for aggregation, which would otherwise be almost limitless, to circumstances in which there was a real connection between the transactions in which they occurred. But the Law Society had seen fit not to circumscribe the phase of some series of related matters or transactions by any particular criterion, and therefore determining whether transactions were related was an acutely fact-sensitive exercise, and in each case it was necessary to begin by identifying the relevant transactions. But the relevant transactions involved an investment in a particular development scheme under a contractual arrangement which was principally bilateral but which had an important trilateral component by reason of the solicitor's role both as escrow arrangements and trustees. But the transactions in respect of each development were connected in significant ways in that each group of investors was investing a common development while participants in a standard scheme and co-beneficiaries under, co under a common trust that viewed objectively those connecting factors led to the conclusion that the claims of each group of investors arose from acts or omissions in a series of related transactions. That said, the two developments projects were separate and unconnected transactions relating to different sites with different groups of investors and protected by different deeds of trust over different assets. Thus, accordingly, the claims of each group of investors could be aggregated pursuant to clause 25A4, but the claims of each group could not be aggregated with those of the other group. James, perhaps you could now explain what happened in Baines and Dixon and Coles. Thanks, John. So Baines and Dixon Coles um, is a judgment of His Honour Judge Safman sitting as a High Court judge from the end of October last year. And it's involved uh, separate claims being brought by multiple clients of a solicitor's firm, the defendant, um, arising from the mis misappropriation of various funds by one of the partners of that firm. That was Linda Box. Um, who was the former diocesan registrar of the Diocese of Wakefield and who had misappropriated around £4 million in funds belonging to various clients. The firm Dixon, Coles and Gill was a three-partner firm. The other two partners were Mr Gill and Mrs Wilding and they maintained they were entirely innocent of the dishonesty perpetrated by Mrs Box. And that firm, being an unincorporated partnership, um, had chosen to take the minimum level of cover of £2 million. So straight away you can see um, the uh, potential advantage to the insurer of aggregating, where if they were facing multiple separate claims, each within the £2 million indemnity um, limit, uh, they wouldn't, uh, they would be liable for the entire amount claimed by all claimants. Whereas on the other hand, if they were able to aggregate the claims as one claim, uh, then instead of a £4 million liability, they would have a £2 million liability. In fact, um, His Honour Judge Safman found uh, that the claims could not be aggregated for the purpose of the policy, as they did not arise from one act or omission, nor was there a sufficient interconnection between the thefts perpetrated by Mrs Box to bring them within that term series of related acts or omissions for the purpose of the minimum terms and conditions. And I'll go on to explain in more detail now um, why he reached that finding. 
So there were broadly two sets of claimants. In the first set of proceedings, uh, the claimants were representatives of the church um, who brought a claim for recovery of funds misappropriated um, by Mrs. Box. Whereas in the second set of proceedings, uh, the claimants were four charities um, who claimed sums that were due to them from an estate uh, that was being administered by the firm, uh, which they were beneficiaries of. Uh, Mr. Gill and Mrs. Wilding discovered that uh, Mrs. Fox dishonestly appropriated that four million pounds of money uh, and produced um, ledgers uh, which indicated to some extent what Mrs. Box had done. Um, there was a, a ledger entitled the Bishop of Wakefield Fund in which she had recorded transactions apparently for the church's benefit for which um, the other partners did not recognise and the church did not recognise. And there was also another client account ledger entitled the Bishop's Trust, which was said to contain spurious entries and details of essentially fictitious conveyancing transactions purportedly made on behalf of uh, the church, but which were really a cover um, for the moving around and taking of money um, by Mrs. Box. And this process was described as teeming and lading, which she had engaged in on a widespread basis in relation to uh, all of the claims brought against the firm. Uh, the claimants uh, representing the church brought uh, a claim for summary judgment for an account uh, from the firm by virtue of uh, the position of Mr Gill and Mrs Wilding as equity partners along with Mrs Box and applied for an interim payment as well. Uh, in relation to the second set of claimants who were beneficiaries under the will, as I said, uh, essentially Mrs Box had misappropriated legacies due to them. So. As we mentioned a little earlier, the minimum terms conditions provided that one claim could arise from an act or omission of the insured, or on the other hand, a series of related acts or omission. Perhaps unsurprisingly, His Honour Judge Sappen found that the uh, claims did not arise from one act or omission, although that was contended for by the insurers. These were separate acts of theft, giving rise to claims that took place over a period of years. And even though they all had the same objective of stealing money from clients, and there was a common dishonest motive on the part of Mrs. Box. Dishonesty was a state of mind and not an act or omission. Um, the judge also relied on the Solicitor's Regulation Authority Accounts Rules, Rule 7, uh, which uh, refers in 7.2 to breaches in the plural, indicating uh, that multiple misappropriations from a client's account constituted multiple breaches of those rules, which was consistent with it being more than one act or omission. And for the purpose of the first part of the aggregation clause in the minimum terms of conditions, uh, the fact that Mrs. Box had engaged in that teaming and lading uh, was not a sufficiently unifying factor to treat all of her theft as one act of remission, which, as I say, is perhaps unsurprising. Um, the uh, bigger area of dispute, as it were, was whether or not uh, her actions amounted to a series of related acts or remissions such that the insurer would be able to rely on one of the other parts of uh, the minimum terms of conditions aggregation clause. And the judge found that that was uh, an inherently fact sensitive matter, uh, which is what the Supreme Court stated in the RG and Woodman case as well. Um, but in the particular facts, uh, on the particular facts of this case, the thefts from the claims did not have a sufficient interconnection or unifying factor um, to bring them within that term related series of acts or remissions. Uh, and again, the judge relied on uh, the AIG and Woodman decision that John's just outlined in reaching that conclusion. These were financial losses suffered by the first and second sets of claims caused by separate thefts for each of them, 
and there was no basis on which to aggregate them, according to his honor Judge Safman. And in reaching that conclusion, um, the judge also referred to uh, and commended the claimant's uh, argument that when determining whether different masses form a series of related masses for the purpose of aggregation, the acid test was whether any one client could plead a complete claim against the defendant uh, without referring to another act, matter or transaction uh, from which a different uh, claim arose. So in other words, when pleading uh, the claimant's case, does the claimant have to rely on uh, the fact that another claimant um, has a similar claim against the defendant? In His Honour Judge Safin's view, this test had much to commend this and was consistent with AIG and also fitted with the uh, decision of Lloyd's that I referred to from 2003. So that, in summary, is what happened in the uh, Baines uh, case. Uh, we thought it would be uh, useful and interesting to conclude this podcast by discussing some hypothetical scenarios that we've come up with, uh, which have some connections with real cases we've been involved in and also bear some similarities to both the AIG and Woodman and Baines um, cases. Uh, and test really whether or not in these hypothetical scenarios uh, aggregation should or should not apply in our view or whether perhaps it's unclear. The first of those three scenarios, uh, which uh, I'll outline, um, has some similarities to a case I was involved in, uh, involving the purchase of off-plan properties. So uh, imagine that there is a development site of perhaps 300 flats or thereabouts uh, that is sold off to purchasers of flats before the block is even built. Uh, that is not in fact an uncommon scenario and has happened a number of times uh, in this country uh, and what will typically happen is there will be one or more marketing agents uh, through whom the, uh, the sales are in principle affected and in this scenario the marketing agents uh, have on hand a trusted firm of solicitors that they can recommend to any proposed purchaser to go to to handle the conveyancing on their parts. Now, in fact, that firm of solicitors uh, may have an ongoing business relationship with the marketing agents or with the developer itself that's selling these properties off plan. Uh, and so uh, there is cause potentially for concern there anyway, um, or not. But the firm of solicitors have been recommended and uh, in order to make this work for them uh, and cost effective and charge a relatively low fee to each client and thus get the work, they've developed a pro forma um, service, as it were, a standard process for dealing with it with pro forma advice uh, contained in standard letters of advice to the clients. Now, if in fact there is an error, a negligent error in that advice across the board, systematic error, let's say as to planning issues or perhaps the lack of NHBC cover for these new properties or something to do with uh, the unusual deposit structure that may be in place to fund the, the development, then the solicitor's firm would end up facing uh, potentially um, dozens of claims from purchasers. Uh, and if we imagine that they've got the minimum three million pounds of professional indemnity cover because they're a, a corporate entity, and let's say 30 purchasers have lost on average 200,000 pounds each, and they'd be facing claims totaling six million pounds, 30 separate claims. But if they could be aggregated, then that would clearly be in the insurer's interest because it would cap their liability at three million pounds rather than six million pounds. Now, John, I've outlined the scenario there about this um, off-plan purchases of the development. Uh, 
it seems to me that this bears some similarity, in fact, to the IG and Woodman case, which I think was also um, possibly off plan uh, and involved lots of purchasers in a couple of developments, one in Morocco, one in Turkey. Um, but I would have thought there is um, a difference, an important difference in this case, because as I've outlined it, we're talking about lots of individual purchases of property in the ordinary way, presumably the grant of a long leasehold to the purchaser over a particular flat within the development. We're not talking about some kind of common ownership trust type structure that appeared in AIG and Woodman. In your view, would there be a sufficient connecting factor between the claimants in the hypothetical scenario I've just outlined or not? Well, I'd agree with your instinct. I, I think although there are similarities with this with the scheme in AIG and Woodman, the fact is that there aren't connections between the different purchasers and there isn't an overall trust or an overall company. And therefore I'd say these are individual claims. Is that your view as well? I think so, yes. Um, there isn't uh, one transaction, as it were, that they're all committed to. I mean, these transactions could have occurred over a period of a couple of years, independently of one another. Um, and the the fact that the solicitors involved each time doesn't make it one transaction. It makes it lots of, um, as it were, similar transactions, but which probably aren't sufficiently related based on AIG and Woodman uh, and Baines there to be aggregation. The second scenario that we came up with uh, was a bit more like Baines. So uh, let's imagine, and the facts are rather simpler in this scenario, that there is a solicitor um, who has helped set up, given the legal advice on a trust, a high value trust, and is also then a trustee of that trust. Again, not an uncommon scenario, um, but that's a trust uh, with, it could be millions of pounds in it. Um, in fact, on this scenario, it must be millions of pounds. That is um, within that trust, divided up into sub-trusts or funds for each of the identified beneficiaries. So each beneficiary has a ring-fenced uh, entitlement under the trust, but the trust as a whole is still administered as, as one overall trust. Uh, the funds that might be stolen from that trust could amount to four or five million pounds, and this is a high street firm and unincorporated partnership with only two million pounds of cover. So again, the question is, could the insurer um, take advantage of the aggregation clause within terms in that scenario? Um, and again, John, my initial view is that uh, whilst this is similar to Baines in terms of thefts by a solicitor, from funds under their control belonging to clients, there is a very important distinction uh, and that it's actually in a way a bit more like uh, each set of claimants in the AIG case because there is this overarching trust structure and it's the position of the solicitor as trustee of that overarching trust that's enabled them to steal money from um, multiple ring fence funds but still within that trust. So although it's not as perhaps clear cut as AIG, I think it probably would entitle the insurer to aggregate, but what's your view? I agree. I think the fact that the solicitor sets up these uh, trusts, funds or sub-trusts means the trilateral component linking the transactions and therefore that the insurer would be entitled to aggregate in these situations. Yeah. The final scenario we thought about was um, a litigation context. So many of uh, the situations in which Professional identity insurers, solicitors might seek to aggregate. Indeed, many of the situations in which solicitors would seek 
would face high value claims arise out of transaction work um, by its nature rather than out of litigation um, because there are relatively few individual uh, claims in litigation which exceed the two to three million pounds uh, cover of, of solicitors and those solicitors handling bigger claims rather like we barristers handling bigger claims would tend to have higher um, levels of uh, indemnity cover accordingly. But it occurred to us, uh, and I think you've had some recent experience John, of these sorts of cases, that in a group litigation claim where there could be hundreds of litigants, there must be the potential for um, a very big exposure for the solicitors to lots of smaller claims um, that might therefore be um, aggregated. And so if we imagine, for example, a group litigation case with 200 litigants, each of which ends up with a claim for £50,000 against the solicitors that were representing them in that case uh, for some sort of negligence, uh, that would be a total uh, claim against this solicitors of £10 million. And it's not inconceivable that those solicitors might only have, say, £5 million of cover. John, what do you think that the scope for aggregation is in that kind of scenario? I'm, I'm pretty sure here that there wouldn't be aggregation because I don't think the fact that claims are structured under civil procedure rules as a, under a group litigation order or in with various test cases should make a material difference to how the claims are treated for the terms of the policy. So although the solicitor has given incorrect advice on the merits, I think each uh, claimant would have his or her claim uh, not aggregated the other claims even though they're pursued, being pursued under the GLO. And I suppose that is a little difficult in some ways to get one's head around, isn't it? Well, that, that what you can see how the insurer might end up considering aggregation because, of yeah. course, this pleading um, test that uh, His Honour Judge Safman commended in the Baines case um, talks about whether or not you need to plead another claimant's uh, claim within your own claim in order to bring to bring your claim um, to be a little tautologist and. Uh, you can well see that in a group litigation case, uh, the claimants would be pleading together in a common particulars of claim and referring to each other's cases. But do you think that um, brings it within that test or not? I don't think it does, no. No, no I suppose the um, you don't have to, as any individual claim would not have to actually rely on the others uh, in order to bring their claim, would they? Can you exactly. envision any circumstances, though, in which maybe not advice on the merits, but something else in which the um, solicitors, uh, indemnity insurers might be able to aggregate in a group litigation course? Well, I, 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 yes, it depends. I mean, we've, we've formulated this example as advice on the merits, but let's say a solicitor through their negligence managed to get all the claims, the five test cases struck out and that the GLO couldn't pursue. You could say that in those circumstances, perhaps the claims could be aggregated because there was one negligent act or omission which caused loss to multiple parties. So perhaps not issuing in time or not serving an issued claim. Not issuing in time would be the obvious, obvious, obvious example. Yes. So that's really more under the first gateway in the in clause two point five one a, isn't it? That that it's actually all one down to one act or omission. It's not really about this interconnectedness yeah. point. Um, yeah. So there. So whilst in Baines, that wasn't a particularly good argument. It seems to me on behalf of the insurers, um, it's not one that should be forgotten about, is it? Yeah. 
Well, those are the three scenarios you came up with. Yeah, well, we, we hope you found this explanation of aggregation in the contract context of solicitors PR insurance useful. And if you want to get in touch to discuss anything of, about this with us, both James and my details can be found on the Hardwick website, as can those of our practice team managers, Richard Samano and James Duncan Hartle. Thank you again and goodbye. Thanks. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.